Hello, everybody. Great to be with you. This is Michael Millerman. Today, I'm reading The Virtues of Right-Wing Anti-Liberalism, an article that I wrote for im1776.com a few years ago, but that you may not have seen and would like to hear. When you have a minute, uh, like, subscribe, share, do all of the usual things, and visit millermanschool.com for my courses, some paid, some free, on Leo Strauss, Martin Heidegger, Carl Schmitt, Alexander Dugan, and other thinkers, Plato and Aristotle as well, some of whom I mention in this piece. It is helpful when thinking about the contemporary intellectual landscape as it concerns the problem of liberalism and the alternatives to it, not to ignore the phenomenon of right-wing anti-liberalism. Yet, this phenomenon is not as well understood as it should be. The historical reasons for this state of affairs are not difficult to grasp and do not need elaboration. But the question remains whether something of importance was lost when alternatives to the right of liberalism were discredited for reasons of political history. Failure to understand the varieties and theoretical merits of right-wing anti-liberalism will make it harder to deal adequately with the return of the right, if there is one. Historically justified talk about the vices of right-wing anti-liberalism may have blinded us to the problem of its virtues, but we won't do ourselves favors by willingly proceeding blindly through a matter of such consequence. You could not go through a list of the top five or maybe three right-wing anti-liberals in all likelihood without coming upon Carl Schmitt. In the name of the friend-enemy distinction and the real possibility of physical killing implied by war against an enemy, Schmitt's concept of the political polemicizes against liberalism with inimitable conceptual clarity and lethal reserve. Schmidt, the Nazi jurist, like no other thinker in so little space and with such effectiveness, reminded us that depoliticization, neutralization, and evasion of the responsibilities of sovereignty are not likely to represent a safe and serious path forward for a people. Surprisingly, though, in his notes on Schmidt's book, the more moderate Leo Strauss asserted that Schmidt did not manage to find a horizon beyond liberalism. For Strauss, Schmidt's position is liberalism with an inverse polarity. Whereas a liberal tolerates any form of life so long, it's, so long as it's peaceful, Schmidt tolerates any form of life so long as it's dangerous. Both sides are neutral as to the content and mirror each other in their empty formalism. Moreover, Schmidt returns to man's natural state of enmity, but that natural state of enmity is just, for Strauss, the Habesian starting point for civilization as pacification. Schmidt doesn't pass Hobbes, the founder of liberalism. Schmidt said Strauss saw through him like an x-ray. We therefore have it on Schmidt's authority that Strauss's interpretation merits our most attentive consideration. For Strauss, the primary cause of disagreement among men concerns the dispute over the right way of life. A man who no longer asks the question of what is right is no longer a man. But, quoting Strauss, if we seriously ask the question of what is right, the quarrel will be ignited, the life and death quarrel. The political, the grouping of humanity into friends and enemies, owes its legitimation to the seriousness of the question of what is right. 
Not an empty formalism, but the substantive matter of the utmost concern is decisive for the political. We can't ask the question of what's right or what is good, however, without understanding how the tradition of political philosophy has influenced the way we formulate and respond to that question. The serious life needs the history of political philosophy. To reiterate this surprising point, starting from the gold standard of right-wing anti-liberalism, Schmitt's concept of the political, we quickly find ourselves down a road that starts not with enmity and risk, but rather with the question, what is good? Whose origins lie in our tradition, in Plato and Aristotle and the Bible. But we have moved too quickly. Let's slow down. It's possible to say that for Schmidt, and more generally for a certain kind of right-wing anti-liberalism, what matters is the willingness to risk one's life in battle against an enemy. What matters is therefore courage. But why should courage be the primary virtue? Strauss reasons as follows. The bourgeois ideal is to live a riskless life. We're motivated to avoid a violent death and to seek increasingly comfortable self-preservation. The most straightforward way to reject the bourgeois ideal is to embrace a risky life, to be open to death and to expose oneself to non-utilitarian self-sacrifice. That much is clear and straightforward. What then is the problem? The problem of assessing the proper place of the virtue of courage in the order of human affairs did not arise with Schmidt or his followers. It's an old problem. You can find it in Plato. Indeed, you can't do better than to read the beginning of Plato's laws if you want to assess the claim that warlike virtues are primary for man. The laws tells the story of an old man from Athens who visits the island of Crete to talk to an old Cretan and an old Spartan about law. The first question of the dialogue is this Athenian stranger asking them, the old Cretan and Spartan, who they say gave them their laws, a god or a man. Incidentally, that makes the dialogue indispensable for the theological political problem and not only for the problem of the status of courage. In any case, they respond by saying that to answer justly, their laws were given by a god. The Athenian stranger then asks them, with an eye to what end has your legislator legislated? In our case, we'd be familiar with an answer that said that legislation has been made with an eye to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or peace, order, and good government, or something like that. The interlocutors in the dialogue respond that their legislators legislated with an eye to victory in war. All cities are always in a state of war with one another. The Athenian stranger, questioning them like Socrates, asks whether it's also the case that individuals are always at war with one another, and then whether individuals are at war with themselves. And they say yes in each case. When we celebrate victory in war, he then asks, do we not celebrate the victory of the better part over the worse? We would not, after all, celebrate the victory of the worse part over the better, right? Right. So the aim of victory in war has some orientation to the question of better and worse. And it could not be that the God, who is wise, wanted you only to think about victory and not about the other issue. And they agree. 
Before too long, if you pay attention, the Athenian stranger is providing an absolute masterclass on the tactful reform of a code of law. But for our purposes, what must be emphasized is that Plato shows that properly understood, independently of reference to the God, it is not true that courage is the highest human excellence, nor is it true that courage is the highest political virtue. It's plain to see why the rejection of the bourgeois ideal initially thinks otherwise. However, under the broad theme of the virtues of right-wing anti-liberalism, we have to acknowledge the platonic argument, which also rejects the bourgeois ideal of comfortable self-preservation, yet positions courage in its right place in the hierarchy of human excellences. You see, courage is not the first and foremost virtue because it rests on this prior inquiry into what's better and worse, into what's good. Perhaps we've moved too fast again. It's somehow too easy to pass from contemporary right-wing anti-liberalism to Plato. If it were that obvious a step to take, you'd see more Platonists among the erstwhile deplorables or their most radical subset. But you're more likely to see, together with Schmidt, Nietzsche, and possibly some other thinkers, including traditionalists and German conservative revolutionaries. There are obstacles among these thinkers that prevent a simple return to Plato. To take the most obvious example, Nietzsche criticizes Platonism ably at some length. Heidegger does too. Platonism seems like a quaint, refuted thing. Socrates was old and ugly. The new right-wing anti-liberalism is young and hot. Plato's Socrates did what? He talked and talked and talked. But we've had enough talking. It's time for action. It's fitting and natural that the young right-wing anti-liberals want action. It would be dereliction of duty and a sign of incompetence for their elders not to understand that and instead to offer them pathetic bromides that reinforce among the youth the impression that the old and ugly elders are hopelessly out of touch. At least, that's what Leo Strauss argued in 1941 when he said that the worst and most dangerous thing for the young German nihilists, those that rejected civilization and hated the leftist version of the future, was progressive teachers who didn't understand the positive significance of the youthful no- unaccompanied by a coherent yes. Old-fashioned teachers, undogmatic enough to comprehend what the young people wanted and why, could have helped them to see that the alternative to the bourgeois life and the communist vision need not be the destruction of civilization, but there were no such teachers, and the students were further radicalized by clueless progressives. Strauss ultimately acknowledged the decency of the moral passion represented by right-wing anti-liberal antipathy toward bourgeois and communist ideals. A passion, he says, was shared by Plato, Rousseau, and Nietzsche. His analysis of German nihilism showed that although under the circumstances this moral passion, this moral revolt against the bourgeois and the egalitarian left, was partly expressed in vulgar form in Hitlerism, it had profound antecedents and could be justified on high ground. Strauss combined his justification of the philosophically necessary criticism of modern civilization with the responsible corrective of what he regarded as its politically disastrous consequences. He did so partly and with reference to the situation then prevailing by arguing that the pre-modern ideal, more desirable than the modern one, 
was better preserved in the advanced countries of the West than it was in young Germany, which in its zealously militaristic rejection of modern civilization, forgot the classical concern with the good life. Moreover, and more importantly, Strauss's recovery of the tradition of classical political philosophy showed that the necessarily immoderate character of the philosophical quest for wisdom need not be incompatible with the virtue of moderation. To paraphrase one of Strauss's many brilliantly astute formulations, moderation is a virtue of not the philosopher's thought, which is private, but of his speech, which is public or political. It's an open question to what extent present-day right-wing anti-liberalism shares these virtues of thought and speech. They're not particular to Plato. For Strauss, they characterize the tradition of political philosophy, where the moderation of speech is reflected in the practice of exoteric writing and the immoderation of thought in the practice of writing between the lines. That suggests that the alternative to the right-wing anti-liberalism that champions the virtue of courage need not return to Plato. It can draw upon the broader tradition that Strauss called Platonic political philosophy, by which he meant the specific combination of immoderation and moderation mentioned above. You see, in other words, in rejecting bourgeois and communist varieties, you don't only have to go to the military virtues, you don't only have to go to people who champion war, risk, and sacrifice, in fact, you're better off going to this broader tradition of platonic political philosophy, which understands the proper place of wisdom and moderation and of courage, for example. The fact that there are varieties of right-wing anti-liberalism forces us to raise the question whether any of them is true. We're not particularly well-equipped today to even understand the intention of such a question for who today still believes and thinks he can prove that there can be the truth simply about political life. Now, the problem is that we're lagging behind some old debates that are quickly becoming matters of the first importance and that we can no longer defer. 80 years ago, Strauss assessed the Spanglerian claim that scientific knowledge and other domains of human life are relative to their time and place and that therefore there cannot be the truth simply, not about political life and not even about mathematics or logic. Strauss argued that among the problems fatal to Spengler's approach is that Spengler assumed too much. When claiming that truth varies according to culture, he assumed he could describe something as a culture that didn't describe itself that way, or that he could interpret cultural life in terms of the central and peripheral concerns, regardless of the question whether the people he was talking about divided their own concerns into central and peripheral ones. And if so, whether the specific areas were the same ones Spangler took for granted. Strauss showed that a hermeneutically adequate assessment of the claim that truth varies according to culture would at least have to study a culture's texts to grasp how it understands itself without imposing a modern conceptual schema on it from the start, distorting the phenomena at the outset. For example, we don't understand the polis as a city-state because state is an interpretation drawn from a conceptual uh, set that is completely foreign to ancient Greek political thought. Okay, so Strauss taught us that we should derive our categories from the study of the texts and not impose our categories onto the study of the texts. If we begin with the thesis that all truth is culturally relative, 
We are led then on Strauss's argument to the interpretive task of understanding cultures on their own terms through the study of their old books. And that study, Strauss thought, leads not to historical and cultural relativism, but to a set of basic problems and concerns that remain constant over time and place, and that therefore reveals something about permanent human nature. If that's right, it should be possible to assess whether a teaching is true to human nature simply. Relativism does not hold. The question which, if any, right-wing anti-liberalism is true is meaningful. Strauss also saw, though, that the thesis of historical and cultural relativism had a more serious philosophical dimension than what Spangler himself provided, namely Heidegger's philosophy. Heidegger's historicism forces us to think differently about the truth and virtues of right-wing anti-liberalism. But where is this research project competently pursued? Do we have enough of an understanding of Heidegger to consider him in relation to Schmidt and other critics of the bourgeois and communist ideals? Heidegger's philosophy intimately concerns us in the moment of the crisis of liberalism. What if the issue of the truth of a teaching doesn't matter, not because truth is relative to time and place, but because the truths of reason are subordinate to a greater authority? Among the varieties of right-wing anti-liberalism, there are, after all, not only the atheism of Nietzsche, but also positions based on obedience to divine command political theologies. You can already imagine a few people in the intellectual landscape today who represent that alternative. But that's nothing new. Strauss was writing about a similar dynamic in 1940 when recounting the intellectual atmosphere of post-war Germany. When we are faced with the same situation, with radical atheism on one hand and obedience to divine authority on the other, what then? Strauss said his contemporaries lacked the conceptual wherewithal to think about such a situation clearly. Are we any better off? Some among Strauss's contemporaries who aimed to return from authority to reason turned to the natural law theories of the 17th and 18th centuries. At least that way there could be a rationally defensible moral standard to provide cohesion to a political community. Yet Strauss showed that these teachings did not provide a solid basis for a return to reason. They depended too much on the traditional belief that modern philosophy had refuted classical philosophy and progressed beyond it on the back of that refutation. Heidegger, however, demolished that belief. He showed that the classics cannot have been refuted because they've not been understood. A return to reason that was not marred by a faulty tradition could only be a return to pre-modern reason. That return could not rest content with scholasticism because it was clear that scholasticism depended on Aristotle and therefore has a derivative nature. A genuine return to reason could only be a return to Plato and Aristotle. All philosophy after Plato and Aristotle, Strauss argued, was based on concepts inherited from them without taking over the genuine encounter with ordinary life that engendered those concepts initially. Studying Plato and Aristotle meant encouraging man's natural, excuse me, encountering man's natural life world, seeing naively in the best possible sense and in the only way we still can. Let me say that again. Studying Plato and Aristotle 
meant encountering man's natural life world, seeing naively in the best possible sense and in the only way we still can. You see, to get off the text here for a minute, Strauss said we can no longer simply observe political life phenomenologically. It's been too abstracted, too conceptualized, too technologized, too modernized. And in order to return to the possibility of simply encountering man in his natural political life world and seeing without all of the technical conceptual superstructures, we can't do better than to study the writings of Plato and Aristotle. That's where we can see the phenomena before they've been encrusted with centuries of conceptual overlay. Later philosophies are, as I continue, overly artificially constructs, uprooted from that natural state that we can still encounter in Plato and Aristotle, itself gradually forgotten. And interpreting ourselves by their light, by the light of later philosophies, we're uprooted too. Okay, so all of this is to say a return to the study of Plato and Aristotle gives us access to the original phenomena and roots us again, ourselves, in the natural state. From Spangler's relativity thesis, through the irrational authority of political theology, to the inadequate invocation of natural law and scholasticism, Strauss returns us then to Plato. Could this be the greatest virtue of right-wing anti-liberalism? That unlike liberalism and left-wing anti-liberalism, it leads us back to the origin of our history and to the origin of our future. For we cannot overcome Plato without having understood him. Okay, that was this article that I wrote a few years ago for IM1776.com called The Virtues of Right-Wing Anti-Liberalism. I hope that you found there something worth considering. Feel free to comment, like, share, subscribe, respond, uh, criticize, do whatever it is that you'd like to do with this. I can say just one additional word about it. Some of you know I do work on this Russian thinker named Alexander Dugin. One of the first things I ever heard Dugin say was this argument that the 20th century was characterized by an ideological dispute between liberalism, communism, and fascism. That after the defeat of fascism, you had the Cold War, bipolar war, <laughs> bipolar world, divided between liberalism and communism. And then with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the communist pole, you had the unipolar moment, the end of history, liberalism as the last ideology standing. And whoever challenged liberalism, not from the left, was automatically thought to be fascist because the model of three political theories says either you're liberal or you're communist or you're fascist. So if you're not liberal and you're not communist, you must be fascist. And I never thought that really added up. I think Dugan was right that it doesn't. One of the things that helps us to disambiguate the political spectrum is to expand this conceptual space to the right of liberalism beyond fascism simply to include more broadly varieties of right-wing anti-liberalism. So that's something that I've tried to do in my research and I work on people like Leo Strauss, Carl Schmitt, Martin Heidegger, Alexander Dugan, even figures like Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, my work on Plato and Aristotle. It's all in part designed to expand the conceptual space that is neither liberal nor communist without having a collapse into fascism. And so I thought a nice, helpful shorthand phrase for all of that 
as a first approximation is right-wing anti-liberalism. And when you do that, when you expand the umbrella there and can begin to bring thinkers in, you see that there's something to be said, not just about their vices, but also about their virtues. And that it's possible in a conversation that falls under the umbrella of right-wing anti-liberalism, still to have arguments, assessments, and movements and judgments that take us, for example, from understanding Carl Schmitt to passing beyond Schmitt with Strauss, past Hobbes, to Plato. Anyway, I tried to write in this article about that kind of thing. Hopefully you found that interesting. As I say, feel free to read it. There's a link. You can see where to find it. Listen to this again if you'd like to. Please visit millermanschool.com if you're interested in any of my courses. And I will see you in the next video.